Church family, will you take your copy of God's word and turn to the New Testament book of 2 Peter? It's a small book towards the end of the New Testament. If you're uh, looking for it, uh, you're going to find it there towards the end. We are starting a new series today uh, through the book of 2 Peter. As we have done for the last few years, we've provided uh, ESV scripture journals, which has the text that I'm preaching on one side of the page and uh, blank notes on the other side. Uh, if you would like to have one of those, some, several of you really enjoy ta taking notes and keeping them all in one place. Uh, if you didn't get one last week or this week as you were coming in, there are some on the back tables and in the Equip Center. And nobody's going to be angry with you if you get up now to go get one, if you just want to make sure that you have uh, all of your notes uh, in one place. And obviously, as well, the sermon notes are in the uh, connector today for you there. I always look forward to starting a new series. It's always an exciting time for me. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit of now, we finished Daniel a couple of weeks ago, uh, and there's always a little sorrow because I get to know these authors and know the writers and know the books and, and uh, really spend a lot of time in it. Uh, but then there's a new excitement. As I put those away, there's a little sorrow, but there's new excitement uh, as we start something new. And I'm very excited uh, to be starting this here. As, as we told you several weeks ago, uh, this sermon series is a part of a project that I'm doing uh, as I am... Uh, completing my doctoral degree at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, there are a couple of dozen of you that are participating with me in this uh, research. Here's all I need you to, because several of you asked this morning, all I need you to do is pay attention. That's all you got to do for the next eight weeks. Not just those couple of dozen. I would love for everyone to pay attention. You're here, right? You got up, you came here, pay attention. Um, but uh, those of you that are participating with me, nothing you need to do, pay attention and you've already done some, and then you'll do more at the end. I'll invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to start at the beginning of 2 Peter and read through verse 15 this morning. Simeon Peter, and yes, that's right. It's normally Simon Peter, but in a couple of places, he's called Simeon, and this is one of them. A servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to, conform, uh, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. 
For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, for the excitement of approaching a new book of the Bible together. Thank you, God, for the legacy of scripture left for us from the prophets and the apostles. Thank you, God, that at the end of his life, your Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Peter to remind the church of God to diligently pursue following Christ above all else as we pass the faith from one generation to the next, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I most often do, this morning's sermon title is the same as the series title, All the More Diligent, that we would be all the more diligent. I think this is Peter's intention, and I'm going to show you that as we walk through these 15 verses together, Uh, even though it's translated a couple of different ways in this text, we're reminded to do so, to be diligent in our faith on three different occasions, just in these 15 verses, as well as later in the book. Now, I would normally not preach 15 verses on the first week. For those of you that have sat under my preaching for the last several years, you know I tend to go relatively slow as we walk through New Testament epistles. Um, I am under a little bit of a time constraint with with my doctoral project. So I'm going to do in eight weeks what I would normally do in nine or ten or probably more like 12 as as I look at 2 Peter. I would normally preach an overview sermon at the beginning. I'm not going to do that. We're going to run straight into the text, but there are some points of uh, clarity that will be helpful for us as we come to this. Because the scripture, none of the 66 books of the Bible were written in a vacuum. They were written by specific people, to specific people, in the midst of specific circumstances. And knowing as much as we can about those people and circumstances helps us with understanding the real meaning of the text. Yes, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, Peter in this letter makes that argument that scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit inspired humans to write to other humans, to write about other humans in the context of human activity. Peter writing his now second letter to what is likely, even though he does not identify them at the beginning, likely from the context of the letter, his second letter to churches in Asia Minor. First Peter identifies these churches. It was a, it was a circular letter. First Peter was, second Peter very likely as well. And we know from the context of what we've already read that Peter is towards the end of his life. So we are likely in the mid 60s of the first century. And a lot is happening in the mid-60s of the first century. It has been maybe three decades plus a couple of years since Christ had gone to the cross, resurrected from the grave, we celebrated last week, and ascended to the heavens, and the Holy Spirit 
coming upon the apostles at Pentecost. And from there, the gospel spread over the course of a couple of decades onto three continents. And the church, following the teachings of the apostles, continues to make disciples and continues to organize themselves within local churches throughout the Roman Empire and even possibly beyond by the time we get to the writing of this letter. What we know from early church writings is by by the sixth decade of the first century, Peter is in Rome and very likely in prison. Nero is ruling the Roman Empire, and while there was not under Nero systematic persecution of Christians, there was still at least governmental systematic persecution of Christians, there was great persecution of Christians because the Roman system of work and religion were so intricately tied together that to reject Roman worship and to reject emperor worship was to stand out as different in the culture. And so many Gentile cultures uh, to which Peter is writing here finds themselves in persecution, in difficult times. Peter himself is likely already in a Roman prison. At the same time that the Apostle Paul is likely in a Roman prison, awaiting death. Having written a few years earlier to these churches in Asia Minor, Peter now writes again. This time he writes a farewell discourse. As we'll see in this text, Peter expects that the end of his life is at hand. Many, and we will see later in the book, many first generation Christian leaders are already dead. Many of the apostles have already been martyred. Many others who were counted as leaders among the first generation of Christians are now dead. And in the same way that Paul does with Timothy and Titus from Roman jail, Peter seeks to equip the next generation of church leaders to be faithful, the next generation of Christians to pursue Christ and to follow him as they persevere. The church, having experienced great persecution in Israel and now throughout Rome, saw that as a threat during that first generation of Christians, but Peter is going to identify a greater threat. Yes, a greater threat to the church than persecution from the outside is false teaching that would arise from the inside. And in the face of either one of those, whether it is external persecution from a wicked culture or internal destruction from false teachers, Peter is going to call the saints of God in these churches to persevere. The primary doctrine that Peter emphasizes for us in this short three-chapter letter is the perseverance of the saints. The back of your handout is a definition of the term perseverance of the saints, Wayne Grudem defines that term as all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. Over the course of the next eight weeks, I hope to make this extremely plain for us, that the expectation for all of those who are truly in Christ is that we will, regardless of external or internal pressures, persevere 
that we will follow Christ with our lives. We state this as a core belief of our church. In the fourth core belief of our church that deals with salvation, in part we say all true believers will persevere to the end. We have professed this as a congregation to be true and we believe that it is true because the scriptures plainly teach it. Now we'll see this from varying aspects over the course of the next eight weeks here in our series in 2 Peter, but we will begin this idea today. Here's the main idea of today's sermon, that believers persevere to the end through the Lord's gracious work in their lives. No, Christian, you're not alone in the call to persevere, but that the Lord working in your life the one who brought you out of darkness into light, who took your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh, will continue to work in your life so that you will persevere to the end. Verses one and two are a common greeting amongst ancient letters. Peter identifies himself. Don't get caught up. I know I said it when I read it. Simon Peter, Simeon Peter. We see that both here and in the book of Acts. It was just a different way of spelling the same name. This is Peter, the disciple of Jesus, writing to who he calls those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours, giving us this idea that it is one generation, that first generation of Christian leaders writing to the next generation of Christians saying, your faith is equal to our faith, who have a standing and righteousness before God because of Jesus Christ. And then he wishes grace and peace, the common first century Christian greeting towards them, asking that it would be multiplied to them in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Three things we want to see about perseverance today from these verses. The first is the Lord's provision for perseverance. Look at verses three and four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. If Second Peter is a call to persevere, and I truly believe that it is a call for the next generation to persevere, passed on from one generation to the next as the faith is passed down from one generation to the next. And so Peter begins here with a call not only to persevere, but to recognize that it is the Lord who provides the provision necessary for us to do so. The Lord has, Peter argues in verse three, provided all that we need for life and godliness. Life and godliness speaking to the perseverance of the saints of God. By Peter saying that the Lord has provided all that we need for life and godliness, he is saying that God has equipped us for every good work, that God has given us everything that we need pertaining to the Christian faith. That there is nothing about the way that we live that is left out of scripture. And this, by the way, 
still applies so many generations later, now in the 21st century. You may say, we live in a very different culture than Rome. Truthfully, our culture is not as different as Rome as we would like to believe. But we are certainly more technologically advanced than Rome. There are things about, uh, about uh, mathematics and science and technology that we have learned and developed as culture has progressed over the centuries since this time. And yet the promise of God in Second Peter remains. He has given to us everything that we need to persevere. He has provided for us everything that we need to, for matters of life and godliness. God didn't leave anything out. He's not left you to have to try to figure something out on your own. God's not surprised by the progression of history. And so what God has provided for us, regardless of the time that we find ourselves living in, is sufficient. Peter says that God has done this in two ways. One, through the knowledge of him, and second, through his great promises. So how do we persevere? What is it that God has provided for us that gives us the provision necessary to persevere? The first is that we have the ability to know God, that we can know him. For those of us that grew up in the context of Christianity. We grew up in church. We grew up coming to Sunday schools and, and vacation Bible schools and grew up through youth group. And the, we, we kind of become numb to the majesty that is the ability to know God. Think about that for a minute. That God, infinitely different than everything else in his creation, gives us the ability to know intimate things about his person and character and ways and plans that we can know God. And can I tell you something? I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. You, you don't know everything there is to know about God. You can never know everything there is to know about God. And I can never know God enough. This is the way that we should approach gathering together to study the word of God, gathering together to teach one another about the things of God. We should always come into the, the pursuit of studying God from this. There is something God, there is something about God that I don't know that I need to know for life and godliness. That God has revealed himself to us. And by knowing God, we then persevere. Because by knowing God, he equips us for the pursuit of perseverance. But also, it is the great promises of God. Verse 4 says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now again, this is, this is some verses in three chapters of a letter of Peter. And Peter is... Uh, later in this book, going to expand on this idea of the promises of God so that we can come to a fuller understanding of what he means. But here's what Peter means when he talks about the promises of God. That God has actually said certain things to us. That he has revealed certain things through the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles that are sure and true. That they are his promises. That they are certain and that God has provided everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of his promises. 
So God has given us himself, namely in the Holy Spirit that indwells within us, has given us the ability to know him through the visual image of his son, Jesus Christ, and through his promises, the scriptures, which call us to persevere and ensure that we will have everything that we need to do so. It is not by accident that Peter begins this letter with a reminder that God has provided everything that we need because like everything else in the work of salvation in our life, it is God who is working in his people to bring them faithfully to the end of their lives. In Philippians chapter two, verse 13, the apostle Paul writes, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hear me, Christian, God is at work in you. Earlier in that letter, Paul writes, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That not only is God at work in you, but God's not going to stop working in you until the day of Jesus. Meaning this, until the day that you leave this body, as Peter's going to write about later, God is still at work in you. Now, let me just quickly address the the person in here who feels like maybe God's not at work in you. Maybe maybe you you come here this morning just desperate for for this feeling as if God's doing something in you. And this is part of the problem in modern Christianity is we've made so much of modern Christianity about these feelings that we have. People will leave churches because they don't, don't feel God in that church. I don't even know what that means. Stop basing your progression in faith on some kind of feeling. And rest assured in the knowledge of God and in his promises that if you are in Christ, God is working in you and God is not finished working in you. Regardless of where you are in life, God is not done working in you. And God has given you everything that you need to continue following him in this life. Regardless of what arises before us, he will hold us fast. Number two, the diligent pursuit of perseverance. Look at verses five through seven with me. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So as we are, we're gonna see probably a hundred times over the course of these three chapters, uh, Peter, Peter ch- changes quickly. He, he calls us to imperative uh, on, on numerous occasions. It's actually about once every three verses in First Peter do we find an imperative, a command to do something. And they're very often going to, going to follow the word for. So if Peter's going to tell you something, he's going to tell you to do something. He's going to tell you something, tell you to do something. That's what he's doing here, right? He told us something that God's given us everything that we need. So we're without excuse. Followers of Jesus are without excuse when we fail to persevere. Because God's given us everything that we need. Now, Peter's going to give us the imperative. He's going to say this, pursue it, diligently pursue it. So in verse five, where he says, for this very reason, make every effort. That is the first of three times that we see 
a, a word in Greek that is translated in different ways in English, but means effort, diligent effort. Sometimes effort with haste, meaning it must be a priority for us. When we see these words, make every effort, as we'll see again in the text, and as we see, be all the more diligent, Peter is calling us to prioritize following Jesus above all else. So for this reason, because God has given us the things that we need, we then prioritize these characteristics of what's known as sanctification. And and here's what we're going to see in this list. And Peter does something that's fairly common in scripture. We end up with a list. And when we end up with a list in scripture, we need to ask really what's happening with this list because sometimes lists operate in different ways in the scriptures. So this list of Peter that that takes up the second half of verse five, all of six and seven is neither an exhaustive list nor a sequential list. Meaning, or at least not an entirely sequential list. Meaning that these aren't the only characteristics of the Christian life. There are some really good ones, but there are some other ones that show up in other places of scripture that aren't mentioned here. So it's not exhaustive. And when I say it's not an entirely sequential list, I mean that we shouldn't necessarily think about this as being things that we pursue one at a time in a very specific order. With this one caveat, I believe Peter begins that list and ends that list intentionally with faith and love. And the things in the middle, instead of seeing them as being sequential, they should be characteristics of the Christian life that we should pursue simultaneously. So let's just look at faith first, because that's where how he begins. For this very reason, make every effort, so make a priority, diligently pursue, or first he said, make every effort to supplement your faith. So he begins with this idea that he's writing to people in the faith. And this is obviously from the, from the jump, a Christian sermon. This is a sermon to Christian people. And this is a letter to Christian people, to people who are in the faith. Faith is... That is the means by which God saves his people. It is the gift of God in our lives that brings us into right relationship with him. And what we're going to see through this list is that the saving faith is evidenced, not earned, but evidenced by growth in our faith. Then he ends the list with love because love is the ultimate outcome of the Christian life. So faith is what brings us into the Christian life and love is the ultimate expression of Christian life. And you say, well, wait a second. Is love really the ultimate expression of Christian life? Absolutely it is because Jesus says it is. If Jesus says it is, then we're gonna go with that. In Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22 is an interesting chapter in the Bible. Um, It begins with a parable of people being invited to a feast and the people that, that were invited didn't come. And so then the servants go out and get all these other people to come in. And the people that were invited to come but didn't come were the religious elite of Jesus' day. Jesus is telling a story for their benefit. Basically saying, God invited you to the party, but you chose not to come because you didn't recognize who, who I am. And they didn't like this very much. These two groups of religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, didn't like it very much. And so the rest of Matthew 22 is a bunch of gotcha questions. 
They're, they're, trying to, they're trying to catch Jesus. So they try to catch Jesus on paying taxes. And then the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection try to catch Jesus in um, this like riddle about a man who's married a whole bunch of times and doesn't have any children and which wife will be his wife in the, uh, you know, in the afterlife after the resurrection. They're all trying to catch Jesus. And really one of the most profound passages in the New Testament comes out of one of these gotcha questions. Because the Pharisees, um, after the Sadducees have kind of been put in their place, the Pharisees who are law scholars go to Jesus and are like, hey, which of the law is better? <laughs> because they would have said all of the law is equal, right? That's not what Jesus says though. We're told in verse 34, and the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gather together, so they, they huddle up, right? And one of them says, ask them a question to test them. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says the whole Old Testament can be summarized in this idea. Love God, love people. So it should be no surprise to us that a few decades later, Peter says, the culmination of our Christian growth is love. And let's qualify that. What does that mean? It means exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 22, that we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And that because we love God, we love that which God loves. Which is why in one of our core values, we say we will show God's love to all people at all times because God loves people. And so because God loves people, what do we do? We should then love people. So love is the ultimate expression of Christian faith. So it begins with faith, it ends with love. But then there are these six other characteristics that we pursue simultaneously. Don't think about these as a one, as an order, as in I'm gonna do number one, and then I'm gonna do number two, and then I'm gonna do number three. No, we're gonna pursue all of them at the same time. Author David Helms' description of these Christian characteristics in his, um, in his commentary on 2 Peter, here I'm relying on him to give him credit. He says of virtue that virtue is an honorable life that does what is right regardless of the outcome. So when we're told here that we should add to supplement our faith with virtue, what Peter is saying is that our lives, our faithful lives should be marked in an honorable way. This was a, by the way, he starts off this first characteristic that's added to faith uh, is, is one that was highly prized in Roman culture. It was written about by non-Christian um, scholars of the day. They, they wanted people to be virtuous. And so Peter borrows from their word. And really what that means is it's, it's an honorable life that regardless of what the outcome is going to be, I'm going to live honorable. Now, Peter's gonna define honor in a different way than other Roman philosophers would define it. He then says, add to virtue, knowledge. Knowledge is knowing the right thing to do. So where virtue is doing the right thing, knowledge is knowing what the right thing is. He says to add to knowledge, self-control. Self-control is the ability to say no to passions of the flesh. 
If virtue is doing the honorable thing and knowledge is knowing the honorable thing, then self-control is not doing the dishonorable thing. And he says steadfastness. Steadfastness literally is strength and longevity. We don't just have moments of virtue and knowledge of self-control. We have a continued life, a continual effort, diligently pursuing, following Jesus and doing that which God has equipped us to do. Then we add to steadfastness, godliness. Godliness is the lifestyle of Christ. Jesus demonstrated to us humility, He demonstrated to us suffering. He demonstrated to us service. And we follow in the footsteps of Christ. Then we add to godliness, brotherly affection. Brotherly affection is love for one another. It is a different Greek word than the word love that follows it, but it is still loving. It's loving the brothers, the loving the brothers and sisters, loving the church, that we love one another then ultimately we love that which God loves. And you may look at one of these or more than one of these and think, man, I struggle with that. I would invite you to do that. Think about this list for a moment and ask the question, am I struggling in one or more of these areas? If you are, know this, God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. <laughs> He's told you what you need to do. He's placed you in a church that can help you know what you need to do and walk alongside of you as you seek to do what you need to do. So what do you need to do? You need to pursue it, diligently pursue. Make it a priority in your life. If you struggle with self-control, make it a priority. If you struggle with godliness, make it a priority. If you struggle with loving one another, make it a priority. Because here's what Peter's going to say. In verses eight and nine, Peter's going to say those that pursue this, are these that pursue these things that, are, that make these things a priority, are, are, he's gonna couch it in a positive and a negative. And he's gonna say those, those that are pursuing these things are doing right and, and they, they can make their calling and election sure and those who are not, maybe they weren't in the faith to begin with. Listen to verses eight and nine. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So again, verse eight is the positive. Verse eight is progressive sanctification. It's, it's this idea that we will grow in our faith, that those who are born again will, by the new nature that God has given them, pursue that that God has set before them. Think about it. Before you were in faith in Jesus, what did you pursue? You pursued worldly things because you had a worldly nature. But God has given you a new nature. He's given you a nature that is able to pursue godly things. So what is it that we should pursue? We should pursue the things of God, continually becoming like Jesus. This is the definition of sanctification. It's the continuing work of God in the life of believers, to make, to, in the life of a believer to make him or her actually holy. This is the work that God is doing in you, that as we persevere in life, God is helping us to put off our old way and put on a new way. The 
The best picture for this is like changing clothes. It's like taking off dirty clothes, which you do kind of one step at a time and putting on new stuff. And this is the progress of Christian life. You won't fully achieve this. It's okay. Keep at it. But heed the warning of verse nine. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This week, I, I got a new Bible. I was excited. I've been wanting this Bible for a while. I don't know. Maybe that's a strange thing. Um, but I was, we went to a conference this week, and they had it on sale, and so I bought it. And one of the reasons that I want, I've, I've preached from the same Bible for about 15 years. Um, and uh, one of the reasons that I wanted a new Bible is because the print's a little bigger. I can see it a little better. And uh, just so happens on the first Sunday that I'm preaching from this new Bible with a little bit bigger print, Peter uses this illustration for us about being nearsighted, right? I'm not, it's not lost on me. It, and here's what he says. He, he, the negative outcome is blindness, nearsightedness. And that's actually, our English Bibles reverse the Greek order, saying that we're nearsighted and blind. In the Greek order, it's, it's, it's blind, and then he defines the, the blindness as nearsightedness. Now, he's not talking about physical nearsightedness. He's talking about those who focus only on things of the world. And the warning of verse 9 could mean two, one of two things. The warning of verse 9 may be those who are just failing to live up to the godly life that God has called them to live. But I think in the context of 1 Peter, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a I got to stand on one of the other. And so here's what I'm going to stand on loosely, but here's what I'm going to stand on. The context of first Peter, what I think, or second Peter, what I think Peter is describing here is, is apostasy. Peter is describing those who are never truly in the faith at all. Those who maybe seemingly came to the faith in Christ, but failed to persevere. Those who seem to have called on Jesus for the salvation of their sin, but never followed Jesus with their lives. I believe that the warning of verse 9 in 2 Peter 1 is that there are those who at one point in their lives looked as if they were saved but were never true believers because they did not follow Jesus. They did not evidence their faith with perseverance. Verses 10 and 11, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Right? Because of these two examples... (laughs) Here's what we need to do. This is the context for, by which I make that statement about verse nine. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you in an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It seems as if those in verse nine are not included in verses 10 and 11. And that verse nine serves as a warning for us to persevere as evidenced by sanctification, that progressive work in our lives. This is how we can know that we have been called by God to salvation and that we are truly in him because we have persevered. Now, let me be abundantly clear. Your perseverance does not save you. Even your sanctification, the, the work of sanctification does not save you from a justification sense meaning all the good works in the world can never make you right with God. But those who have been by the blood of Jesus made right with God will persevere. 
Listen to how Peter describes salvation in 1 Peter chapter 1. So this is in his previous letter to these churches. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter doesn't speak of salvation as a thing that can be lost. And we shouldn't speak of salvation as a thing that can be lost either. Salvation is a thing that God does in our lives. And because he does this work in our lives, then it is evidenced by our diligent pursuit of him. Recognizing that there are times we fail. We don't lose our salvation in the moments that we fail. We rest on the patience of God. Later in second Peter, he writes this, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. There again, another call to diligence and at peace. And then verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And we're going to use Peter as an example for this here in just a moment, but recognize something. I fail to diligently pursue holiness, godliness, love all the time. And so do you. And in those moments, I don't start back over at zero and have to be saved again. No, but the evidence of my life is that God is at work in me. And the call of God is to diligently pursue as we persevere in life. Third, a personal example of perseverance. Look at verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body. The word he uses there for body is is the same word as tabernacle. He calls his body a tent twice here uh, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body, this tent will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time recall these things. Look what Peter says. Peter says, church, I'm going to help you. Until the day I die, I'm gonna help you. Until I put off this body, I'm gonna help you. That we have an example of perseverance in Peter's life as he sits in a Roman prison, as he awaits execution, he remains persevere. He is still diligently pursuing God. And here's what he says, I will help you. John chapter 18 is a story about Peter. And in John chapter 18 is the last night of Jesus' life. Peter's cut a guy's ear off. Big bad Peter, right? Gonna go to war, just him and his sword. And Jesus says, man, put that thing away. Heals the guy's ear. Same Peter, a couple hours later, Jesus has been taken to the home of the high priest. He's on trial. Peter's trying to get close, sitting out in the courtyard. And what happens? Simon Peter, this is verse 15 of chapter 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. 
Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Then you skip to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also, are not, uh, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. Now, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus takes place in 19 and 20. And we get to 21, second to last, really the last narrative account that we see in the book of John. The disciples have had breakfast with Jesus and Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to me, don't miss it. He said to him, follow me. Decades later, <laughs> decades later, Peter writing about his impending death, remembering that Jesus had told him something about his impending death, passes on to the next generation this command, follow Jesus. You say, why go back there and look at Peter's life? Why look at the denial of Peter in that courtyard? Why look at the restoration of Peter in John 21? Here's why. Because we've all been Peter in these moments. We've all been Peter in that courtyard. Scared of a little servant girl. Worried about what they may do to us. Failing to persevere. And here is the gracious call of God in our lives that Peter echoes to the church of God. Come on, Peter, follow me. Come on, Peter, pick yourself up, follow me. I've given you everything you need. Now come and follow me. And so if you feel like a failure in this today, Christian, you're in good company. Follow Jesus. If you, if you feel like you, you haven't quite lived up to that which God has called you to, know this, me, me too. <laughs> Together, here's what we do. We follow him. Now, quickly, and I'm out of time, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I think it's important, the context of this. Peter's at the end of his life. We know that from the context, from what he's written. He's at the end of his life. He has diligently now for three decades or more followed Jesus. He's persevered. There are people in this room who for decades have persevered. And the example of Peter is an example to you. Help others follow Jesus. Can I tell you something? And I, I mean this. I don't, I don't say this. I mean this. The senior adults in this church are a great encouragement to me. You are. You, you, you have been in my life and the life of many others, an, an incredible encouragement. You've sacrificed, you have given, you have loved us. You have, you, you've allowed us to do things that may not be your preference. 
for the sake of the gospel. But can I say something to you? Until the Lord takes you home, the best thing you can do for this church is to find younger people who have walked with the Lord less time than you and do exactly what Peter is doing here. Make this commitment. Until he takes me from this tent, I'm going to help you follow Jesus. This is what one generation does for the next. So what? Do I see evidence of Christ-enabled perseverance in my life? I said it before, but I would reiterate quickly. It is only through Christ that we persevere. It is only through Christ that we come to saving faith in Jesus. It is not our actions. It is not our works that save us. It is the work of Jesus alone. And it is Christ who then enables us to follow him. It is his invitation that we answer to follow him. And it is his equipping that we have for everything in life and godliness. But we should ask this question of ourselves. Do I see evidence of that? In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us to examine ourselves. He says this, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Faith, test yourself. Or do you realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The same thing that Peter would say in verse 9 there, there are those who are going to fail to meet the test. I hope that you will find out that you have not failed the test. How can I know if I'm in the faith? Am I really person? Is there evidence of belief in my life? Is there evidence of persevering in my life? Am I living to the end? Listen, this is not a sermon that is intended to cause you to doubt your salvation. It is a sermon intended to reaffirm your salvation for those that are in Christ. It is a sermon calling you to continue to persevere to the end with the assurance that God is the one that holds our salvation. But if you are here and you say, there, is, there has been no growth in my life. I don't care to pursue the things of God. I don't care if I look like Jesus. I walked an aisle when I was a child and they told me then that that was all I had to do. And so that, listen to me, understand, I think the warning of the scripture is this. That may have looked Christian, but that wasn't Christian. Because here's what Christians do. Christians persevere to the end. So do you see evidence of that Christ-enabled perseverance in your life, knowing this, that it is he and he alone that holds us? We're gonna sing a profession of that here in just a moment. We're gonna sing the song, he will hold me fast. When I think my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. I don't have to worry Am I in Christ? But I can see evidence of my life that I am as he holds me and moves me from one degree of glory to the next as I persevere in this life and then help others to do so as we bring along younger Christians in the faith. Let's pray together. God, thank you that we have a great savior, Jesus Christ, who has made us alive in him who has made us right in your sight, but also has called us to persevere. Help us, God, to be a church who faithfully follows after our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And when we stumble and fall, thank you for your patience that picks us up, dusts us off, and holds us fast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.